Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on Fridays in May, each film touches upon Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or the Hard Way to Enlightenment and the discreet charm of the bourgeoisie at nortonsimon.org. Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. Follow Jelly Roll Morton, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz, in this ambitious musical masterpiece that's sure to blow the roof off the theater. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. Welcome to Film Week. I am John Horn in for Larry Mantle this week. Thank you so much for being with us. We have lots of movies to discuss. And coming up later in the hour, you know her from movies like Nanny McPhee and Love Actually. Emma Thompson and I chat about her new film, What's Love Got to Do With It? And our critics will tell us their thoughts about the film as well. Speaking of those critics, joining me today is Christy Lemire of the Breakfast All Day podcast series, Peter Rayner from the Christian Science Monitor, and Charles Solomon from Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. We're going to start with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. It's the latest installment of the Guardians franchise. Chris Pratt and Zoe Saldana return to again defend the universe. It is written and directed by James Gunn, who soon, or now, is headed to run DC along with Peter Safran on the Warner Brothers lot. Christy, your thoughts of Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 3. This is a very different Guardians movie. If you love the first two, and I really do love the first two, just be prepared. It's a much darker tone. It has some shocking, harrowing imagery. It's not all happy fun time, planet hopping like the previous films. As you pointed out, James Gunn is leaving to go take over DC. And so we know this is his last time, this his last go round with these characters, with this world. The Guardians will always go on in some form, of course. Nothing ever truly goes away in Marvel, but this is the last iteration for this group. So we know it's sort of a somber tone here by comparison, um, but it feels like two very different movies kind of slammed into each other. A lot of what's happening here is Rocket Raccoon's origin story. Once again, voiced by Bradley Cooper, who's really very good here. He's called upon to show a lot more shading to Rocket than just being profane and like shooting everybody in sight and coming up with witty one-liners. Um, there's a lot more going on here. We learn about his origin story, the really horrifying things that happened to him before he ended up with the other Guardians. Um, but also it's got to mix in the you know, jokey quips and Mantis and Drax bantering and what's Star-Lord up to and what's happening on Nowhere. And there's a couple of new villains here. Um, the main big bad uh, wants to use Rocket to help create this perfect society that he envisions. Um, it's it's about eugenics, basically. And uh, I think it's just really, it's really heavy and it, it's, a, it's a hard tonal balance to strike between these two things, I'm very much in the minority in not loving this movie. Uh, the Third Guardians is at 80% on the tomato meter. A lot of people really loved it, and they're saying it's the best one since Endgame or since Spider-Man No Way Home. People were crying. Um, I was not. Um, one of the the you know hallmarks of the Guardians movies is the music in them, right? And the soundtrack that is always in Star-Lord's head and... This time, it's a much more random music mix. It's like everything from Radiohead to Rainbow to The Replacements to The Beastie Boys to Florence and the Machine to a really cool use of Space Hogs in the meantime. But too often, it feels like Gunn made a playlist of songs that he likes and then came up with <laughs> scenes to go with them. Like, like he reverse engineered it right. somehow. There's a long take is meant to look like one long single take in a hallway one long big battle scene to a beastie boys song and it's so overpowering and so out of place and the images are so detached from reality like more so than usual in this kind of movie um that i found it all really distracting there's a cool bit on this really weird planet that looks like it's made out of meat and plasma. And in moments like that, where the production design's really inspired, where it's colorful and it's strange and it takes some chances and it's not all the same kind of big, glossy Marvel extravaganza, that's when this stuff sings. And that's the best of James Gunn, I feel like. Um, but too often it's just like, 
a couple of different movies going on here at the same time. So disappointing again, but I don't love this and a lot of people do. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is in wide release now. It is rated PG-13. Next, the Japanese sci-fi drama Plan 75 has an interesting premise, to say the least. A government program encouraging the euthanization of senior citizens to better society. It's vaguely the premise. Soylent Green, the not very good Charlton Heston, Edgar G. Robinson movie from 1973. Peter, your thoughts on Plan 75. This is a, a near great movie. It's 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 really quite extraordinary. I guess it, it can be characterized as, as science fiction, but it, it doesn't really have any of the trappings of science fiction per se. It's an, it's set in a kind of vaguely f- future uh, near dystopia, uh, Japan. I think Tokyo, but I don't know if they ever specify it. Um, and as you said, it's it's there's a government uh, program that's been set up. It's voluntary. Uh, for those who are 75 and over to um, basically uh, depart from this world. They, they're given a modest stipend, and uh, they arrange the, the date and time of their death. And uh, this is done to, um, uh, to sort of remedy the economic and social burden that old people have on, uh, on the uh, society. Uh, which is certainly a social comment. Uh, uh, the the people who take advantage of this are primarily, you know, oldsters who don't have much of an income or family to to rely on or anything like that. And uh, so it focuses on three people uh, primarily. Um, one is um, uh, a, a marvelous actress, um, Michi Chieko. Uh, uh, I, I'm sorry, a Chieko Baisho, who is, um, plays Michi. She's 78 years old, and she's lost her meager hotel job uh, cleaning hotel rooms, and, and, and she can't really live independently. And so she sort of moves, moves uh, you know, becomes uh, uh, okay with the idea that she should just um, enter this plan. Uh, the other um, uh, character is... Um, is uh, Himoru, who was played by Hayatu Isamoru, who's a, a salesman, a young, uh, sort of spiffy, friendly-looking guy whose job it is to uh, get people to enter the program and, and not feel so freaked out about it that they drop out of it. Um, and then the third is a Filipino care worker uh, who has an ailing daughter uh, in the Philippines, and so she needs a, a better-paying job than the one that she has, and so she becomes one of the Plan 75 people. Um, what's extraordinary about the movie is that re- it really, uh, it's it's so creepily understated, uh, and and the people who work for Plan Seventy Five, the employees, you know, they're not villainous at least on the surface. What they do is, is certainly objectionable, uh, I think, in terms of 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 the perspective of the director, which is a remarkable first feature by Chie Hayakawa, uh, a, a really first rate debut, um, but. But you see, you know, the conversations that they have on the phone between the, uh, you know, the the seventy-five plusers and the the people who work at Plan Seventy-Five. The way that kind of lilting, soothing voice, you know, that 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 it takes on such an edge. There's a remarkable scene where um, uh, the older woman, um, you're not supposed to meet your your uh, uh, the person who's shepherding you through this process, this young woman, but but they meet anyway. Uh, at a bowling alley, and the the scene between the two of them is just absolutely extraordinary. You can see that there's a connection there, which is going to be imminently lost, and neither one feels good about it. Um, anyway, it's it's just a r- remarkable movie in in every way, and uh, it's it's quite it's quite sad, but but in ways that I think are uplifting because it's a really good movie. And I don't think the only depressing movies for me are bad movies. <laughs> I agree. The film is called Plan 75. It's written and directed by Chie Hawakawa. It's unrated. It is showing at the Lemley Monica Film Center. Next, The Eight Mountains, the Italian adventure drama. The Eight Mountains is our next film. Christy, tell us about this movie and what you thought of it. God, I love this movie so much. This is probably going to end up in my top 10 list at the end of the year, I think. It's just excellent. Um, it is a story of male friendship over the course of several decades. These two boys meet when they're about 11, 12 years old, Pietro and Bruno, in this village in the Italian Alps, 
Bruno has lived there his whole life. He's the only boy left in this village. People have died off. They have left. He has stayed there and is destined to follow in his father's footsteps as a bricklayer. Pietro is coming there over the summers with his family to get out of the hustle and bustle of the city in Turin. And they spark up this really unlikely friendship. They're really different kids, but they have this immediate connection and it just feels so natural and so pure and so sweet. And we just get to luxuriate in the incredible, dazzling beauty of the scenery of the Italian Alps. It is, it is so lush and so beautiful, but so, so germane to the bond that these two kids share. Like if they had met anywhere else at any other point in time, they probably would not have become this good of friends. But it's just, it's just them out in the wilderness. And it's what happens over the course of several years as their friendship evolves, as they keep returning to the same place. And it's this very deep and meaningful story of just platonic love, platonic friendship. Um, the cinematographer Ruben Impens has also shot The Mustang, which was incredibly beautiful in its idyllic natural splendor, but also Raw and Titan for Julia DeCorno, which are just shocking. But the look of this is always really incredible. And just the way that, that they depict the passage of time here, the directors Felix Van Groningen and Charlotte Vandersmerch, they... In, in ways that will make you go, ah, oh, that was cool. Like a few years will pass. But the way you come to the realization of that is so eye-opening and so clever over and over again. I really loved it. So um, as adults, they're played by Luca Marinelli and Alessandro Borghi. And they're really different men, you know? And I, I feel like maybe they spell out the meaning of the title a little too much as far as what's preferable. Is it better to stay in the place where you feel comfortable or better to roam the world and find your home. Um, but it's very telling that neither of these men really finds a, a deep, meaningful, romantic connection over a long period of time because truly they have found that in each other. Um, so it's quite lovely. It's long. It's like two and a half hours long, but it's absorbing the whole way through. Peter, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I like the movie. Not not quite as much as Christy. Uh, I, I, I thought as beautiful as the scenery is and the mountains uh, and the drone shots over the mountains, it, it, uh, it was a bit oppressive after a while just because it, it seemed like, um, uh, you know, we're sort of watching a, uh, a, a travelogue, uh, as opposed to a film about these people and, and, and the, the different circumstances of their lives are a little bit sketchy. Uh, there's not much to do with the politics of, of their lives or, or a lot of other things, but, um, it is one of the few films I think I've ever seen that that really is about male friendship that isn't, you know, buddy, buddy, uh, back slapping, you know, uh, fast and furious kind of stuff. Uh, and that's that's quite meaningful and, 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 and deep in this film. And, and, it, and it gets more meaningful as the film goes on. Uh, when it ends, I thought it ended in a way that 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 really summed it all up perfectly and was was quite emotionally powerful. Um, and Luca. Um, Marinelli uh, is is uh, was the star of a film a, a number of years ago, Martin Eden, which was highly uh, touted. And he was really good in that, so it's good to see that he's he's on the on on the on the on the on a roll. The Eight Mountains is unrated. It is playing at Landmark's New Art Theater. Next, what's love got to do with it? Not the Tina, Tina Turner song. It's the title of a new romantic comedy starring Lily James, Shazad Latif, and Emma Thompson. It's written by Jamima. Khan and Shekhar Kapoor directs. Peter, let's start with you, and then we'll come back to Christy. Yeah, this I thought was a sort of a, a, a tolerably enjoyable rom-com. Um, uh, Lily James is a, uh, uh, a documentary filmmaker and a kind of dating app uh, addict. She proposes uh, a movie uh, about um, arranged marriages uh, centering around her childhood friend and, and, and neighbor, uh, a Pakistani uh, guy named Kaz, who's uh, who's you know good looking. He's a doctor. He's uh, well situated. You know, he's he's perfect marriage material, and yet he's going into uh, an arranged, or as they call it uh, euphemistically, an assisted uh, marriage here. Uh, so she proposes this documentary about the whole process of him uh, going through this arranged marriage that's been set up. Uh, she she sells it. 
um, by call, calling it Love Contractually, which I thought was <laughs> kind of a play on a on another movie that uh, Emma's been in. Yes, <laughs> right. But uh, <clears throat> that they uh, what's what's going on with this film is that you know from the get go that these two really are going to fall in love and that they are in love but they don't realize it, et cetera, et cetera. So it's one of these films where you know how do they get to that point that we all know they're going to get to even though they don't know it. Um, and it's worked out fairly interestingly. Emma Thompson plays the mother. She's kind of a hoot. Uh, the mother of the Pakistani boy is uh, Shabana Azmir, who I once served on a jury with. <laughs> Great Indian actress. Uh, it's got a lot of fun things going on for it, but it's fairly predictable. When we come back, you'll hear Christie's thoughts on what's love got to do with it. You're listening to Film Week on Elias 89.3. Support for L.A.S. comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. When Jelly Roll Morton's soul is forced to face the music, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz is left at the ultimate crossroads. This lively musical follows the journey from the back alleys of New Orleans to the sparkling stages of New York, featuring a sizzling bandstand, electrifying tap dancing, and soulful tunes. On stage for four weeks only, Jelly's Last Jam. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets available now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. It's Film Week on Elias 89.3. Welcome back. I'm John Horn, sitting in for Larry Mantle this week. Joining me are critics Charles Solomon, Peter Rayner, and Christy Lemire. Christy, we're waiting for your thoughts on what's love got to do with it. It is quite charming, right? It's total formula, pure formula, but both these actors are so attractive and so likable that it carries you along and you do end up caring what happens to them, even though it's so obvious from the outset, as is always the case in romantic comedies, of course. Um, they don't have a crazy, sexy, sparky chemistry, but just a really nice, warm way with each other, and they're just both so likable and have a great screen presence together. I felt like the the cultural touchstones and the sense of place here were very vivid and specific, and that kind of differentiated this from a lot of uh, other seemingly familiar, similar rom-coms. Um, the costume design is, is great, and just the idea that they're exploring that Kaz is interested in this quote-unquote assisted marriage, not arranged, but assisted marriage. And all that is presented, you know, without judgment. It's not like it, the film in any way makes a mockery of the notion of that. It's like there's a, an earnestness and a kind-heartedness to the depiction of this that um, I thought was kind of refreshing. And so, yeah, it's a very sweet, pleasant, gentle movie. The thing that I think stuck with me, not in the most positive way, is that what every woman needs is a guy or a partner to feel complete. Um, and that's obviously the premise of romantic comedy or romance. Um, but yes, I hear your points. I agree with most of it. Uh, the film is called What's Love Got to Do With It? It's in select theaters now. And later this hour, I'll be speaking with Emma Thompson, who co-stars in the movie about the film and much more. So you'll want to stick around for that. Let's go to Ponyo. It's the 15th anniversary of the anime adventure movie Ponyo. It's going to be showing in select theaters. Charles, tell us about Ponyo, what makes it compelling, and what its impact has been. Well, I don't know that you would classify this as one of Miyazaki's greatest movies. It's not on the same level as Howl's Moving Castle and Spirited Away, but it is a very magical, very charming film that goes back to one of Miyazaki's uh, recurring themes of the magic in everyday life and the need to heal the world that we have so hideously polluted. Um, there is one singularly magical sequence uh, that illustrates a point Glenn Keane, the Oscar winner for Dear Basketball, likes to make, which is you cannot animate emotion. You can only animate movement. And when Ponyo falls in love with Sasuke, the little boy who helps her escape uh, a jar she's caught in. She breaks out of her father's laboratory underwater and goes running to meet him as his mother's driving him 
along the coast and the waves become enormous fish as she's running along their backs and it's such a wonderful metaphor for love and the pursuit of it and again completely magical in a way that uh, only Miyazaki can do. The movie is Ponyo. It originally came out 15 years ago, and it's being re-released to mark that anniversary. It is in theaters starting this Sunday. Next, the documentary The Taking. The documentary The Taking examines one of the most prominent landscapes symbolizing the Old West, Monument Valley. You might know it from some John Ford movies. It's written and directed by Alexander O. Philippe. Peter. Uh yeah, this is, uh, if you like Monument Valley, uh, at least the look of it, you'll love this film. It's uh, it's basically an examination of how Monument Valley has been used over the many years uh, in the movies, uh, certainly predominantly by John Ford, but but many, many other directors. Uh, and even though it's, it's uh, basically uh, situated where Utah and Arizona meet, it's been a stand-in for all sorts of other locations, including Wyoming and Texas. Uh, a lot of people don't seem to know the difference. Um, the thesis of the film uh, is that, you know, this is sort of, um, it's, it's Navajo uh, land. It's, it's, it's basically, um, uh, you know, sovereign territory that was, you know, co-opted by, uh, by Hollywood, and, and the image of Monument Valley has become uh, in the view of these filmmakers, uh, a kind of symbol of, um, you know, white power and the fantasy of the Old West. Uh, I, I, I do sympathize with that view uh, to the extent that I think, you know, it sort of falls in with, with the mistreatment of Native Americans in Hollywood movies in general, uh, including uh, some of the John Ford films, as beautiful as they are. I, I'm in the minority of thinking that, you know, The Searchers, which was filmed there uh, partially, um, is sort of maybe not racist, but racist adjacent. Uh, <laughs> I think it's racist. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. I, you know, so it, it's there's a lot of that in this movie that I think uh, you know a lot of calling to account. Um, uh, there's a tremendous number of clips from from the films. You know, my darling Clementine, uh, the stagecoach. Uh, which uh, Monument Valley was just a, a, a backdrop, and then it became much more prominent in Ford's films. Uh, it goes a little bit over the edge when it starts talking about, you know, they show footage of the attack on uh, on the Capitol, you know, and I mean, it it's it sort of it it becomes politicized in a way that goes totally off the rails. <laughs> um, but it's 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 an interesting thesis, and and the clips are are uh, you know illustrative, and uh, it's 76 minutes. Um, uh, I've been to Monument Valley. It is spectacular. There's a hotel right on the edge called, I think, the View Hotel, where you wake up at sunrise and see the sun come up on Monument Valley. It is spectacular. The film is called The Taking. It's showing at the Lumiere Music Hall. It is unrated. Next up, Hannah Gadsby, Something Special. It's the third comedy special by comedian Hannah Gadsby. It's titled Something Special. She did Nanette in 2018, one of the best comedy specials I have ever seen. Christy, tell us about Hannah's comedy style and what makes this something special, perhaps something special. Well, this is an actual comedy special. You know, (laughs) Nanette and Douglas really weren't. Um, And Hannah Gadsby, who uses they, them pronouns, Um, has had a real knack for deconstructing and analyzing the very nature of comedy, the very nature of stand-up and what it means to tell a joke. And those first two specials, you know, were long and really engrossing storytelling exercises where they examined, you know, what it means to try to make fun of things, try to laugh at things, try to be introspective about things that are hard, you know. And they reached these points in their career that ordinarily comics reach later on, right? Usually comics try to actually make you laugh. And and what Hannah Gadsby has done is try to make you think and try to provoke you. And so with this special, they're happy. Like they're married and they speak to that quite a bit in in the course of the stand-up. Their wife is Jenny Shamesh, who directed this as well. And um, they speak about how transformative it has been to to have someone in their life like that and how the two are there for each other. I mean, there's still fantastic long stories and, and pieces that they laid down in the beginning 
all come together beautifully by the end. But there are a lot of laughs here, and there's a lot of lightness here in a way that we've not seen from them previously. And so this is probably going to be a much more accessible comedy special on Netflix for Hannah Gadsby than the one that earned her, I'm sorry, pardon me, earned them rather Peabody's and Emmy Awards. So um, it's, a, it's a bit of a departure, but one that in no way takes away from the analytical skill and the storytelling prowess that they're known for. Hannah Gadsby was very critical of Netflix and Ted Sarandos for not only broadcasting, but doubling down on the transphobic humor of Dave Chappelle. So it's interesting that Hannah Gadsby is back on Netflix. You can watch it starting there on May 9th. Next, Charles, in his own words, it's a new Disney Plus documentary on the life of King Charles, who I think has a coronation coming up, officially becoming the new monarch for the UK. Charles is also the name of my oldest son and the name of a certain film critic who I think is going to talk about Charles. So in your own words, Charles, what do you think of Charles in his own words? Well, I think you're right about the coronation, John. I, I tried to have, uh, offered to have lunch with him on Saturday, and he said he was busy. Um, this try, is a try breakfast. Yeah. This is a perfectly um, mild documentary. There's some interesting old footage of him going back to being a small child. It comes down very hard on his father, who was apparently very cold and unemotional, and they contrast this that Charles, uh, when his sons were young, was apparently a very involved, loving father in the way that uh, making up for what I, he didn't have, I guess. What surprised me is that they talk a good deal about his relationship with the press, but they miss uh, something that's ongoing, which is the charm offensive that uh, he and his wife have launched in recent years. He's appeared recently on both uh, the Repair Shop and Gardener's World, two of the most popular shows on British television. And Camilla turned up this season on the Antiques Roadshow. And I'm taking odds that one of them, probably her, will somehow be on the British Bake Off, maybe one of their holiday specials. So they're clearly, he's clearly learned more subtle ways of uh, using the media. Again, a perfectly enjoyable little film. I don't know that, that there are any great revelations in it, but worth watching. Not quite the quote you want to see on the poster. Perfectly mild, Charles Solomon. Uh, the documentary is called Charles in His Own Words. It's streaming now on Disney+. Plus. Next up, You Can Live Forever. It's a Canadian drama. It stars Anwen O'Driscoll and June Laporte. Peter, tell us about You Can Live Forever. Yeah, it's set in uh, uh, regional Quebec in the early 1990s. Uh, uh, a gay uh, teenager, Jamie, played by um, Anwen O'Driscoll, uh, her father has died, and her mother just sort of can't handle things, so she's shipped off to her relatives, uh, her aunt um, and her husband, uh, to stay with for a while. They're both um, devout uh, um, Jehovah's Witnesses, and uh, and Jamie is, is, is not of that uh, stripe at all. Um, but she takes a shine to the, the daughter of some friends of theirs who who is an elder, uh, in the um, Jehovah's Witnesses named uh, Marie, played by June Laporte, and their friendship uh, develops into something more than that as the film goes on, to the uh, ultimate consternation, clearly, of just about everybody involved in this very tight-knit Jehovah's Witness community. Um, uh, Mark Slutsky and uh, Sarah Watts, who's the, they're the co-directors, uh, this is apparently partly based on Sarah Watts's own upbringing as, as a, a gay teenager in, uh, in a Jehovah's Witness community. Um, and there's a certain authenticity uh, to the film that I think uh, uh, is, is, is well done. Uh, the Puritanism of the community itself, although it's, it's clearly oppressive, uh, I never felt that the filmmakers were condescending to the way these people live. It's just the way they live, and you have to sort of observe it in that fashion. Um, but I didn't find there was a tremendous amount of chemistry between the two girls, um, and it sort of moves along at a rather slow pace. Uh, and doesn't quite reach the uh, emotional uh, summation that I think it was looking for. Uh, but uh, it's it's commendable and worth seeing. Christy? It's sweet and gentle and understated, and I did think that the two young women had a nice chemistry with each other. Again, kind of like what love got to do with it. It's not like wild, sparky chemistry, but they just have a an ease in which like they recognize something in each other, and that is comforting. This, this thing that is forbidden in this society 
they see in each other and you feel their need, the way that they crave each other and, and the way that they dare to, you know, connect with each other physically and emotionally. Yeah, Peter's right. They they could very easily have judged this Jehovah's Witness community for being patriarchal, oppressive, um, but you see that like the women, yeah, they're the ones doing the dishes and they're the ones cleaning up after meetings and all that. But um, they also speak very earnestly about the sense of pride that they have in their mission. And you do get a sense that they feel a, a joy to spread the truth, as they call it, um, to others wherever they go. So yeah, I thought it was, it was a lovely sense of place. One complaint I have is that the one other friend that Jamie, the lesbian teen, has is this black kid named Nathan. He's played by Hassani Freeman. And his entire raison d'etre is just to be there for her all the time. Like there's nothing at all to this kid besides that. And I wish that they had given him some more character development there because um, he does just feel like the friend who shows up and is there in, in service of her emotional needs. But I thought it was a nice, sweet movie otherwise. You Can Live Forever is written and directed by Sarah Watts and Mark Slutsky. It's unrated. You can find it on Video On Demand services starting today. Finally, Anxious Nation. It's a documentary about what's driving the soaring rates of mental health disorders in teenagers. It's written and directed by Laura Morton and Vanessa Roth. Peter, you have 30 seconds to tell us about this film. That's very anxiety-provoking. <laughs> I uh, um, I, this is obviously a very important subject. Uh, I thought it was dealt with in a rather uh, uh, superficial way. There's a lot of talking heads. There's a lot of talk of nature versus nurture, about the Internet, uh, about all sorts of things, but uh, none of it terribly revelatory or new. Uh, but the subject itself is certainly worth addressing. The documentary Anxious Nation is playing at Lemley's Monica Film Center. It's unrated. My thanks to critics Peter Rayner, Christy Lemire, and Charles Solomon. If you missed any part of our conversation this week, you can head over to Elias.com, where you can listen to full episodes of Film Week anytime. Also, Emma Thompson is coming up later in our show, so stick around. Support for LAS comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies, held on select Fridays in May. Each film touches upon Spanish artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, including Goya or The Hard Way to Enlightenment by Conrad Wolf and The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie by Luis Buñuel. Screenings are at 4.30 p.m. on consecutive Fridays, now through May 31st. More information at nortonsimon.org. Support for LAist comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. When Jelly Roll Morton's soul is forced to face the music, the self-proclaimed inventor of jazz is left at the ultimate crossroads. This lively musical follows the journey from the back alleys of New Orleans to the sparkling stages of New York, featuring a sizzling bandstand, electrifying tap dancing, and soulful tunes. On stage for four weeks only, Jelly's Last Jam. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets available now at PasadenaPlayhouse.org. Welcome back to Film Week. I'm John Horn in for Larry Mantle. Emma Thompson's new movie is called What's Love Got to Do With It? The film follows a documentary filmmaker, played by Lily James, as she makes her Pakistani childhood neighbor's arranged marriage the subject of her next film. Thompson plays Kath, the filmmaker's mother, who, while being very close to her Pakistani neighbors, is often somewhat unaware of her unconscious bias. I talked with Emma Thompson about the film, and I started by asking her how she connected with its screenwriter, Jemima Khan. Well, it began a long time ago because Je Jemima's been writing it for 10 years. And um, I know Eric Felner very well from Working Title. He kept saying, oh, Em, will you come and do, it's just a small role, you know, but just could, could you please come and do it? And for a long time, it just wasn't there. I thought it was a great idea. Arranged marriage, fascinating. Also, you know, the Pakistani um, diaspora here and being represented as, you know, family people rather than, you know, potential ter terrorists every single time you saw anybody with a brown skin. That was really attractive. And the fact that Jemima had lived herself through all of this, uh, a fascinating history and a fascinating woman. And then suddenly, um, two years ago, the script landed again and Eric said she's done a lot of work on it. I think you're going to love it. 
And I did. I really did. I thought it was very funny and very charming and um, I had a lot to say, but in a very light way, had a very light touch. And I thought the character of Kath was was very, was just very attractive because she's such sort of an idiot, really. But <laughs> in 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 a, in a fairly um, benign way, and and so she gets everything so wrong. She's so tactless, um, but not in a cruel way, and and certainly not in a kind of underlying not really liking these people where she actually loves um her neighbors you know her pakistani neighbors really loves them and and accepts that and is really appreciative of the fact that they've accepted her as one of their family and she you know she probably wouldn't have survived or she'd certainly her family would be alcoholics anonymous if it weren't for this extraordinary lot next door but i would say that that the character seems to try and maybe not quite always succeed. And let's just talk about her neighbors. This, this idea of trying to be the good neighbor and understand somebody else's culture and life, but not quite understand her own, as we call it, unconscious bias, that there's so many people yeah. like this and, and I'm one of them that, oh, the totally. that, that we might try our hardest, but we're so guided by, you know, what it is that, that lies beneath. No, absolutely. <laughs> she's you're absolutely right. She has she's deeply unconsciously biased and she's constantly culturally inappropriate and just taking stuff and going, oh God, isn't this lovely? It's also colourful. I mean, she really will use words like exotic and colourful and what and all of that. So, you know, you either sort of absolutely hate that kind of thing and can't bear to watch it, or like me, you're someone who's witnessed it so many times and funnily enough she reminded me of the very first comic character that I played when I was actually 14 years old when the jazz musician um oh god I'm going to remember not be able to remember his name but he also wrote wonderful sketches and he wrote a sketch which was actually based on Lenny Bruce's how to relax your colored friends at parties and it <laughs> it was a woman, as a, she was called the Hampstead Hostess, and she was tremendously proud of the fact that she had um, a, a black a person of colour, a black person at her cocktail party. And this was what the sketch was actually about. And this was 50, no, not even kidding, 50 years ago, half a century ago. So, you know, yes, Lenny Bruce, that was an extraordinary kind of satirical, sharp thing, but this sketch which was gentler, then led to me when I was still writing sketch comedy, writing about a woman in an art gallery, talking to a Vietnamese person in precisely that kind of way. And then realizing right at the end of the conversation that he's in fact the artist. And suddenly she realizes that she's been, she hasn't understood his status, you know? So this kind of the, the unconscious bias, which is a sort of form of snobbery really, as well as racism um, in its kind of most benign form, is it's something that's kind of, I've been doing, performing for, for some time. I didn't realise it actually until until I started thinking about Kath as a, as a person. I thought, oh my God, she's exactly like that person that I played on stage as a character when I was 14 years old and nothing's changed. You talked, we talked a little bit about things that matter and stories that matter. Um, there's a, I guess, a, a opposite side of that same coin, which is stories that don't matter. And the stories mm. and characters that typically get thrown to somebody your age, which is kind of the the wife, the boring wife. I'll, I'll yeah, call yeah, um, yeah. So we know what you like to say yes to, but there's also a lot of things that you say no to. And I think your no's almost define your yeses better than your yeses do. Does that make sense? That's a great way of putting it. Really, really great. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Although, interestingly, um, I find that I've been offered and, and, and written for um, in such an interesting way since I hit sort of 50, really, 55. Um, this, the roles I've had, I think, have been more interesting 
than the ones I was being offered and indeed sometimes playing in my 40s. So that's interesting that somehow I've moved into it. I mean, I'm working so hard at the moment and so many things are coming in that are so interesting. So, but, but that's, I mean, I'm lucky because I'm established and I don't know whether that's true of, you know, other women my age. No, I, I don't think it is. I think that that sort of state of invisibility, that veil um, drops pretty um, heavily uh, at, at exactly the age you're referring to. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, you know, the fact that I have never been, I suppose, the romantic lead has helped a bit because now people don't mind offering me character roles that say a crone of unsettling aspect enters the room and I go, yes, yes, please. I'd love that. It, there is an expression that I love in politics, which is don't tell me what your values are. Show me your budget and I'll tell you what your values are. And, and I brilliant. think you could, I think you can say the same thing about an actor or a filmmaker or producer. Don't tell me what your priorities are. Show me your filmography and I'll tell you what your priorities are. Yes, and, yes that's true. If that were the case for you, what would that filmography say about your priorities? Um, I think it would obviously be clear that I was interested in playing um, women of, of, of character, um, that I never lent towards well I mean certainly didn't do the kind of wife the wifely roles that were endlessly on offer when I was in my 40s which were the don't go do the brave thing um stay here with us at home you know it it, it, it was a real trope <laughs> in in the I suppose 90s or 80s 90s the loads of roles like that which were sort of supported female roles but that basically we're saying to the men, and I mean, actually, they still exist in exactly the same way in things like um, Mission Impossible. You know, there's there's the woman has to be protected, and so he goes off. And but then it's made up for by the fact that there's always a woman who's doing all the kick-ass stuff. I mean, the 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 person I talk to a lot about women's roles is Lindsay Duran, who is the producer as you of Mickle Might, as you and you know of her and her work. She and used to run United Press. Yeah, she's very interesting about um, what writers are being told now about women's roles. So, for instance, women have got to be badass. You know, they can't be you, you can't have a woman crying anymore. You know, the men have to do the crying and the women have to do the kicking. And, you know, actually, you can just take a, a man's name out and put a woman's name in and, and that's it. Job done. Um, but just really interesting what's happened that in this journey towards making stories that actually do represent women's lives and what women's are thinking about what they're doing who they are um we're just barking up the same old trees only it's women barking and and it's so boring it's so boring god i'm talking with emma thompson her new film is called what's love got to do with it more of our interview when we come back it's film week on LAS 89.3 i'm john horn Welcome back to Film Week. I'm John Horn, in for Larry Mantle this week. I'm talking with Emma Thompson about her new film, What's Love Got to Do With It? Let's continue the conversation. There are stories that mean something to you as an actor, a producer, a writer, and there are stories that mean something to an audience. And it's hard sometimes to know what the difference is. Are there things that you hope people take away you know, from Nanny McPhee or the movie you're doing now? Do you think there's a consistent idea of how audiences might be changed by the stories that you like to tell. Yeah, I think I don't think that's changed. I mean, my experience last year of selling um, this movie, which people are so, particularly our Asian audience, you know, they're just so grateful to be properly represented in in all their human reality instead of being somehow co-opted into a kind of villainous role because of our of our unconscious biases and our racism and and events you know which so that's that's been very good um good luck to you leo grand spawned some of the most interesting conversations i've ever had in my life not only with women because it was not a film just for women it was 
most extraordinary. You'd find elderly gay men talking to me and saying that film changed my life. It helped me so much. You know, there was a there were all sorts of fascinating discussions around that. That was a movie that really did change people's lives and did sort of open things up for them. And Matilda gives children so much power. It puts the emphasis so much on their agency. And at a time when their agency is so um, beleaguered by social media, where they're so sort of caught up in something that is is dangerously, I mean, ridiculously unregulated. You know, there's more regulations around the development of a new sandwich for Pret-a-Manger than there is around, for instance, a new uh, AI. I mean, the AI thing is a whole other, other, other business, but, but, you know, the deregulation of everything in relation to young people means that they need these stories more than ever. Certainly my priority now is to make sure that whatever I do put out into the world is what I consider to be philosophically, emotionally, socially, societally useful and supportive and kind, particularly kind. You, you said a version of that recently in The New Yorker, which is whatever I do now, it has to serve the happiness of people. It has yes. to uplift. I think that's my job. But there's a fine line between that and what we'll call Hollywood endings, that life isn't always tidy and neat. And that sometimes, without spoiling this movie, the guy and the girl don't end up together. So at what point are you selling fantasy? And at what point do you think you need to sell reality? Well, I I don't, for, for a start, I don't think that um, making people happy is is um, a function of a Hollywood ending. Hollywood endings are lazy, formulaic, and so forth. So that's not what I'm talking about at all. The films I made were not remotely Hollywood endings, nor were they, you know, um, not at all. Um, so it's it's meaningful, um, uplifting in terms, I mean, in the same way as Shakespeare's uplifting, but you don't say, well, he's uplifting and therefore empty. You know, you mustn't conflate the word happiness and the words uplifting and with a kind of the pabulum of of a Hollywood ending. That's that's not um, well, I don't think that's right at all. I I find formula endings um, very depressing, actually. Um, the, the great endings are the ones that are, have a kind of bittersweet quality that leave you with that sense that you one always has in life. It's just what, who knows what's around the corner and whatever happiness, you know, you're, you're experiencing, it will come to an end. And, um, and whilst that's very difficult to believe when you're young, you always think that things are going to last forever and then they don't, you know, in the end, that's, that's what forms you. That's what creates hum your, your humanity. That's what, you know it's the forge and and stories can be like that forge they can really challenge you in all sorts of ways and and you might think at the end of something really quite well, on the face of it depressing um you you go but i feel so much better because i've been i've been somewhere that was very real and that i could really connect to and i felt seen laurie metcalf told me around the film Lady Bird, sometimes you have a script that is so amazing, you just have to be a part of it. Sometimes you have a crew of filmmakers that are so amazing, you wanna be a part of it. Very rarely did she, she said, do the two happen at the same time? <laughs> that you she have great very, material very and a great group of filmmakers <clears throat> uh, to be around. Has that been your experience as well, that those are not unicorns, they do exist, but that they're few and far between? Or have you had a different experience? I think I think that's an absolutely brilliant observation, actually. You'll often find that films that are quite difficult to make, you know, that is to say, they're not very expensive, they're, 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 they don't have the Hollywood ending, they're not formulaic, and people don't know whether they're going to work or not. And they think, well, do we, can we bother, can we be bothered? Um, that the people you know pushing those movies to be made can be quite difficult personalities you know because they've got to be they've got to be trenchant and 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 uh um costive and they've got to be able to hang on in there just in spite of everything so yes i do think that's that's true 
Um, it is quite rare. Uh, it does happen sometimes, you know, um, and it certainly was the case with What's Love Got To Do With and Good Luck To You, Leo Grant and Matilda. That They were wonderful movies to be part of um, because of the people involved. And, and that's such a great, that's another, I suppose, major part of my decision-making process now. Because I've been watching a lot of uh, clips from superhero movies, I'm reminded of that phrase, with great power comes great responsibility. But there's a mm. version of that in Hollywood, which is that if you have juice, you can help people who don't. Meaning yeah. that you can make sure that you lend your name or your acting or your money, mm. whatever it is, to people who's who historically have had a hard time getting through. Uh, mm. And it could be people who are women, it could be people from the LGBTQ community, mm. it could be people of different faiths, um, mm. it could be people of color. Is that mm. something you ever think about that you have the ability to help people like that break through by lending your name to a project, even if it's unconscious? I often commission young women in particular whose writing interests me a lot, um, not necessarily with in film, although I've just lent my name to a film that's being produced by a very young friend of mine, um, which is about sort of conspiracy theories. And there's, um, I, I mean, I've done that quite a lot over the years. And, you know, with, with projects that are very small and that you probably haven't seen, <laughs> particularly with documentaries and doing voiceovers for people or reading script and giving notes or, you know, whatever, wherever you can be helpful. That's that's something I've I've always taken great joy in doing because it's true. You just somehow sometimes you just need someone to hear and to listen. And one of the great joys is when. You've helped someone and 10 years later, they say, I've just finished my first movie. Here it is. And you go, oh my God, that's absolutely fantastic. You know, so it's um, it's it's very important always to be aware and listen to who's asking for help. Um, and and I, it's something I've always done and I hope I will always do. That was Emma Thompson. Her new film is called What's Love Got to Do With It? It is in select theaters. And a reminder, you can find full episodes of the program at Elias.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find my podcast, Retake, there as well. I'm John Horn. Larry's back next week. Have a great weekend. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com sweeps. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. Yeah, <laughs> I think they're so smart. Just, what the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events.